We are wrapping up our uh, family month, uh, even though there's one more Sunday in January, but uh, this is our last message in kind of this series, Family Matters. We've talked about what is a man, we've talked about what is a family, we've talked about what is a woman, and uh, in each of these categories, we're doing this because we live in a day that is largely trying desperately to redefine these things. And to increasingly leave what has been the historic Judeo-Christian uh, worldview and definition of a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a husband, a wife, a family. And so uh, it's even more important that we as God's people understand what God has to say about these things, that we might shine the light of truth in an increasingly sexually and family-confused culture. It is our conviction here that gender and sexuality are a part of what God assessed as being very good, that sex, gender, and sexuality are very good. You know, it's always safe to uh, agree with God, at least it would seem to be safe, But church history tells us that when a culture is increasingly anti-God, to agree with God does put you in a perilous place. And that is the day that we're living in, as there is arguably no other aspect of our society where culture is running faster away from God's created purpose than the categories of gender and sexuality. I have in my basement of, of, uh, of my house, I have the architectural drawings of our house. We built this house four years, four and a half years ago, and I, I kept the, the drawings. I have them in the basement. If we ever need to remember where a, you know, a stud is, or a, of course, I always tell Jennifer you can always know where the stud is. But if I ever need to know where a stud is or a support wall or whatever, I can go back to the drawings and I can know What was the intent of the designer and the builder? And this is what uh, the church does in these categories is we go into the basement of the Bible to the foundations there, and we have the set of drawings of what God intended this to be. And we must constantly be referring back to those drawings because it's very easy in our day to get confused. And so there in the drawings of humanity and what it means to be a human being, we find statements like this. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We jump ahead to verse 27. So God created man. Can you read your Bibles, by the way? It seems too dark to read your Bible in here. Can you read your Bibles? It's good while I'm here that I can sort of see things, and we maybe we need to up the, the lighting during the sermon here. Can you see him? Oh, hey, look at that. It's like magic. You know, in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And here I am reenacting that for you. Do you see how all this comes together? It's beautiful. So verse 27, it says that, by the way, we're getting new lights in here. So just a side note. Um, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, okay, There's the first indication that humanity is going to be genderized. Male and female, he created them. And then when you look at verse 31, you see, and God saw everything he had made, 
Okay, this is everything. The galaxies, solar systems, atoms, molecules, animals, oceans, earth, and Adam and Eve. And he said it was very good. Now, you don't need extra caffeine on a Sunday morning to see the difference between his assessment on all the previous times and then what he says at the end. After he has made Adam and Eve male and female, he says, ever before that, it's good, but here he says it is what? Very good. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. In fact, we could say it this way. This is now the very best, the absolute best that it could be. In the mind of God, in the infinite wisdom of God, Adam being a male and Eve being a female was the very best way it possibly could be. It was very good, and indeed to this day, it is very good. And so that's the first point that, uh, that I want to make today, is that sex and sexuality and gender, these are all things that are very good, that God himself assessed as being very, very good. And so therefore, we shouldn't talk about these things, sex, sexuality, we shouldn't talk about these things in a way that it seems that we're ashamed of it, uh, that this is something that is only for closed doors, that it is something that is only for the bedroom, uh, or that really awkward night at youth group uh, when they have the talk, or when you have the talk with your kids if you have children. It's not uh, for when your friend or loved one, only when they dis- declare that they are same-sex attracted or they're uh, changing genders or whatever. Sexuality is very good and should have a sense of goodness about it when we talk about it. Now, one of my burdens from my own story of my own life, many of you know I grew up in, uh, in very conservative, some might call fundamentalisty type of uh, a church background, where... Uh, so many people that I know from this, that my same background, of all the categories when they, where they went haywire, they went haywire on sex. And I look back on why is it that this one area, I mean, there's so many aspects to life. There's so many, you know, there are 10 commandments. Only one of them primarily deals with sexuality. And yet of all the 10, fundamental circle, circle people, they go haywire on number seven. Uh, why is that? And I, I think part of the reason is that in those sorts of circles, this subject would only be addressed in a kind of icky way, a hushed tone, a, a kind of uh, intrigue and mystery. And when you're like 13 and, 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 and it's sort of the forbidden fruit, what does it do to you? What does human nature do with forbidden fruit. And so no wonder in circles where sex and sexuality was discussed in a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if derogatory is the right way, but in a, in a less than, hey, isn't this wonderful way, that kids who grow up in those kinds of circles so often go off the rails on this one subject. 
And what it does is it makes Christians ill-prepared then in a culture that is obsessed with sex and is striving to run away from God's will in this category, the church ends up not being very well prepared to talk about it or certainly to live out a godly example of it. The world wins the debate. So better for us to say what God says about it. It's not icky. It's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, shrouded in mystery. It's good. It's very good. It is wholesome. It is holy. It is moral. It is pleasing to God. And for us to communicate that, you know, culturally in the church, but even if, if you're a parent in your home for this subject to be something uh, that your children understand in a comfortable way and understand it to be a good thing, to see it the way that God sees it will help, hopefully, the next generation coming out of our church to not err as so many have in this category. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about our, our present-day culture that we live in and uh, specifically with children. We live in a day where uh, if, you're, if you're like over 40, and by the way, Ellen Anderson's birthday today, just congratulations, Ellen Anderson. You look amazing for 47, I gotta say it, you really do. I don't know what you're eating, but keep eating it, okay? But uh, now I got off, my, my train of thought got off on that. Children, yes, what are they teaching children in our day? They're teaching children that their maleness or femaleness is fluid, okay? It's fluid. What does that mean? That the gender they express themselves in is not necessarily tied to the biological gender they started their life with. It's not tied to the chromosome. It's not tied to the, to the plumbing. Uh, it's, it's fluid, and they are telling your middle school teens that having sex is okay as long as it is consensual. They are telling your high school students that male-centric pornography that is really a victimization of all parties involved is a means by which one discovers how to please themselves sexually. They are telling each of us every day through the internet and the television and media of all kinds, that sex and sexuality looks like this. And that this is not the this that God in Genesis 1 said is very good. So we are not in a time where the church is kind of trying to make up a controversy and, and you know, we need to stir you up and get you all mad, but, you know, it's a straw, it's a, um, what's it called, a straw man? Straw of what? Straw man argument. This is not a scarecrow uh, that we're just creating. You live in this every day just like I do. And you know full well that we are in a, a gender and sex-confused culture more than any of us could ever remember. To give you an example of this, uh, in the fall of 2020, the standards that were recommended by the National Sex Education uh, Board for fifth graders, okay, so uh, this is the Jeff Foxworthy, are you smarter than a fifth grader, that category of child, 
This is what they are recommending to schools that fifth graders are able to do. Number one, to distinguish between sex assigned at birth and gender identity and explain how they may or may not differ. Number two, to define and explain differences between, and here's some words that are in the kind of the gender culture, cisgender, transgender, gender non-binary, gender expansive, and gender identity. To describe the role hormones play in the physical, social, cognitive, and emotional changes during adolescence, and the potential role of hormone blockers on young people who identify as transgender. This is fifth grade curriculum. To explain human sexual development and the role of hormones in all these categories, I won't read them. And to add to this, the document describes common sexual development for an adolescent as they come into their own sexuality to be willing, this is healthy now in their mind, to be willing to experiment with their identity and to experiment with their gender and their sexual identity. Now you say, well, like who's behind that? Like who is trying to promote that sort of teaching? Well, this is a group called the Sexuality Information and Educational Council. It was founded in 1964 by uh, the former director of Planned Parenthood. So now you kind of know where this is coming from. And there were tremendous startup costs that were covered by a guy by the name of Hugh Hefner. So, yeah, you can take those down. Uh, A very quick snapshot, in the educational world at least, of where the encouragement to young people is going. And the question is, how do we respond to this? And what we're saying is, we go into the basement, we get out the architectural plans, and we see what was God intending for a man and a woman, a male, female, what is biblical masculinity and femininity? What does that look like? And let's go according to the architectural plans of the, of the one who made us and follow that. So with that in view, we say, secondly, that God created sexuality and that God assigns gender. Now, we already touched on this in Genesis 1. But uh, let's reinforce this now from Psalm 139. Listen to how the psalmist describes who is active as we are formed in our mother's womb. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I became, when I was uh, made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now Psalm 139, this is David, describing in very poetic language every detail of human development within the womb. And what he says here is that All of it is wonderful. Notice the he, he, he. This is God that is weaving us together, making us who we are. All of this is divine work. And that includes, therefore, the gender 
that is formed in us, the sexuality and purposes for it, David says, is wonderful. Now, we live in a day that says, no, it's not wonderful. That what you come out, male or female, is not wonderful, is not determinative. They do not tether the gender you live to the gender you're born with. No, we must not do that. And yet the Bible says that God has formed us right down to the X and the Y chromosome in our DNA. It is God who is there, sees our unseen form. What a comfort that is. I don't know if we have anybody pregnant here today, but that is a time, I know I went through it twice, at least my my wife being pregnant. Uh, And, you know, that's kind of a nail-biter time as a parent. You wonder, how is this kid doing? And I remember going for the ultrasound and just, you know, praying for a heartbeat and hoping everything looks good. And they're, they're so delicate in the womb, so fragile. And yet, there God's eye is upon them. And the forming of that child, it's a beautiful, Psalm 139, a beautiful and wonderful psalm. But from that then, in terms of understanding sexuality and gender, again, it reaffirms the fact that your maleness or your femaleness is a wonderful thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not an oppressive society down upon you. It's not a patriarchy. It is a wonderful thing. It is a good thing designed and assigned by God. Now, the opposite of that is what is being said in culture today, that your gender is fluid, that just because you come out with male plumbing or female plumbing, it doesn't mean that you have to live your life as a male or a female. This is something that, that you get to determine. And we see in this uh, the, the kind of rebellion against God and his purposes, and right down to a human identity, like, I want to be free from God's oppressive determination in my life. I resent my male plumbing. I resent my female plumbing. I want to be whatever I want to be. I don't want God telling me to do anything. This is mankind. We'll get into that in just a moment. But all of this is describing a worldview. And we talk about worldview at Bethel Church quite a bit, but in case that's a new word for you, a worldview is a set of values. It is a, it is a grid through which we see the reality in the world around us. In some ways, you could say it's like a pair of glasses, okay, where the, these lenses are the lenses through which I am seeing everything and interpreting everything. Here at Bethel, I oftentimes, this is not new to you, but for many, many years around here, I've said, this is what we got to do, folks, right? We got to look at the world through the Bible. And what we mean by that is that the Bible determines our worldview. Or as C.S. Lewis said, I believe in the sun, uh, or I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not just that I see it, but by it, I see everything else. It's my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. If you go to Westminster Chapel in London, they gave him one little square in the, in the floor, and it took years to, to get C.S. Lewis in Westminster Abbey in the poet and author section. And so there it says, C.S. Lewis on a, on a tile. That's all he's got is a tile on the floor. But etched around the outside of the tile is, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not that I see it, but by it I see everything else. And how critical that is for us as Christians 
through the, through the word of God to see everything else. This is what it means to live according to truth, to walk in the light, and to apply that truth and light to this subject of sexuality is something that we all are going to increasingly need to be adept at. Because right now, you might be sitting there going, I don't talk about anybody with this, but you might have a grandchild someday. Grandma, then what are you going to say? Are you ready? So let's look at this through the grid of Scripture and make sure that our worldview is not determined by the media, uh, the culture, but according to God's Word. It's cold out. I don't expect any amens, but that wouldn't have been a bad place right there, possibly, (laughs) for me to know that you're with me. Still weak. I don't know. All right. Next point. God designed sex, and this is controversial, but God designed sex to be between a male husband and a female wife. Now, some of you old-timers, you know, you remember days where that was sort of plainly obvious. But even that statement today, there is a lot to unpack in that. So let's do that. Again, sexuality between Adam and Eve, God said, was a good thing. He designed the plumbing to work the way that it does. God's not in heaven on Valentine's Day going, oh, I can't believe it. I can't look. He delights in it, like he delights in the sun rising. This is a good thing. So to talk about this, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 1. Romans 1. Did you know we just preached through Romans for three and a half years? Perhaps you don't remember that by now. I'm giving you time to turn to Romans 1. Anybody that's been to our church for three and a half years, your Bible should just open to it. Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, this is God describing a a humanity and rebellion against God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did that look like? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We see the idolatry the misplaced worship of, a man, of, of humanity set against God. And we see the category in which this is primarily expressed. Okay, so you might say, well, uh, uh, you know, when I'm in rebellion against God, I'm particularly, you know, I, I just go out and eat donuts. Or, you know, I, I go out and, you know, I, I scream at the sky. Well, you know what most people do that are in rebellion against God? generally has something to do with their expression of their sexuality. This is the category of all the categories that most clearly displays man in rebellion against the will of God. So we have some points here in Romans 1. God calls any sexual expression outside of marriage a lie. It is a lie. It is 
rebellion against God. It is irreverent to God. Verse 26 says that sex outside of God's design is dishonorable. Dishonorable to God, dishonorable to humanity. This is not what we were made for. Romans 1, uh, 26 and verse 27, both call sex outside of God's design unnatural and contrary to nature or contrary to the architectural design. So this category, which uniquely God intended to most reflect what he is like, and I don't have time to get into that fully, but if you think in terms of the Trinity of God, plurality in unity, three in one, the male and female sexual expression is plurality in unity. And in a way that unique in all the universe expresses what God is like. This area, after sin, is the area where we feel the most shame. Have you ever wondered, why don't I, why don't I feel awkward about people seeing my elbow? Or why, why would I be like just aghast if somebody would see the back of my knee or my ankle bone? We don't even worry about those things, do we? But we all have certain body parts that if they were visible to everybody, we would be so, what? Ashamed, dismayed, embarrassed. The places of our body that God intended to bring him the most glory in sin feel the most shame. And so Adam and Eve covered those spots on the body And guess what? Right here, this morning, we're doing the same thing. Now, on a day like today, we cover pretty much all of our body. (laughs) So this illustration will work better in in July, probably, than in uh, in January under a winter uh, storm warning. Uh, But you get the point, I trust. Do I need to put any uh, visuals up? No, okay. By the way, you realize that Even a flasher or a streaker, to use an old term, in a way is displaying theology, right? Like, if if you see a, a cat or a zebra, a male cat or a male zebra running, what do we call that? We call that a zebra, a male zebra running. But if you see a male human running without clothes. We call that gross, right? <laughs> we call that gross. Animals, animals are never naked, right? Now, sometimes it's kind of embarrassing as they're, you know, stretching all out or whatever, but they're never naked. Only humans can be naked. And the only reason humans can be naked is that humans are made in the image of God and we therefore feel shame. Adam and Eve, right away, they felt shame, and realized they were naked. It's an interesting thing to think about. I'm wondering if I should just explore it a little more as I'm standing here with you. I used to talk about this when I was a youth pastor, and of all the things, even speaking at camps, you say the word naked amongst teenagers, you have their attention. And I'm noticing it works with their parents as well. All right, so 
We say gender is good, sexuality is good, and sex within marriage, as God intended, a male husband and a female wife is good. Any sex outside of that is not. It is out of God's will. So boyfriends and girlfriends who might be here, and you've been messing around, the Bible is talking to you. Those of you that are observing pornography, and my heart goes out to you, it is a terrible and destructive bondage. But I have to say, this is sexual experience outside of God's will. That's not how God designed this. Those of you who are perhaps uh, cheating on your spouse, the Bible is talking about you. And really what we can say is any sexual expression outside of male husband, female wife is contrary to God's established design of sex. And the church just has to say that. And I just did. I just did. Now, in saying that, the church also has to say that for those sins, there is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. Okay? And we praise God that, that sex and sexual sin, the, the bad news is that it's sin. The good news is that it's sin because Jesus died for sin. And sometimes we put sexual uh, sins in a kind of category different than your everyday gossip and lying and cheating and any other Ten Commandment breaking. But oh, that Seventh Commandment, we're not sure if that one can be forgiven. And yet we know that when Jesus hung on the cross, he bore all our sins, including our sexual sins. Even though those often are the hardest ones, to apply and receive grace for. And I would say to you today, if, if you are, if, if in your story there is sexual sin, and if you have gone to God and asked for him to forgive you, truly have repented of it, and yet it continues to haunt you, remind that haunting the promise of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we praise God that sexual sin is forgivable in the eyes of God and certainly in the eyes of this church. So, very good. It is by God's design and within God's design, very good. Next, sex is about relationship. Sex is about relationship. Here is Ephesians 5, very familiar passage about husbands and wives. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And oh, lo and behold, guess what we find out about sex? That sex, like everything else in this creation, was designed uniquely to be a kind of spotlight on on Jesus and the church, that sex is a very intimate and uh, pleasurable and powerful and potentially destructive 
aspect of human relationship that gives us an idea of the passion and the love and the longing that Jesus has for his church, his people. Now, speaking as a red-blooded American man, that's a powerful image. I won't ask for the men to say amen right now, but in your heart you're going, well, that is very powerful. Because we know how strong that desire is by God's design. It is about relationship. It is about Jesus pointing people to Jesus and is a reflection of Jesus' passion for, for us. I think about how often in the Old Testament, you know, it's, just, it's kind of strange language to us, but when the, when the Old Testament describes a husband and wife having sexual relations, it doesn't say that, uh, you know, Abraham uh, went in and had sexual relations with uh, Sarah. It says, Abraham knew his wife. Knew his wife. In other words, it's, it's more than plumbing and technique. This is about relationship. A husband knowing and loving his wife. A wife knowing and loving her husband. Therein lies the secret to a great sexual marital relationship. So some final applications here uh, on this, even though I know you'd love for me to go for hours more, at least on this subject. Every other time I'm visiting here, I look out and all the men are going, not today. Uh, some final applications for us. Number one, we must reframe how we think about sex and sexuality, Okay. Reframe it. Can I encourage you in the context of your place in life, wherever that might be, to try your very best to speak about things like this in a kind of wholesome and reverent way? This is honoring to God. I, I, I hesitate to say this, but if you were in a weaker moment to think about even the profanity of the culture around us, it is always taking something that God said is sacred and profaning it. That's the only way it has power. And some of the most profane profanity is referring to human sexuality. This is the way of the world, to profane it. But the church and God's people, we're called to keep it sacred and to speak of it in a kind of uplifting, and reverent way. And I would encourage you to do that in the day-to-day -day of your life. This is why I think jokes about sex and snickering about, about sex and a kind of, I don't know, sort of a, a locker room tone about it does damage to it in your marriage and in, if you have children, their understanding of how holy this is. Let's not do that. Okay? Let's reframe our thinking about it and try to reflect that in the way that we speak about it uh, with others. I think this would be honoring to God. Secondly, make your Christian home sexuality positive. This is a related point here. But I, I refer back to my background where 
it was not sexuality positive, it was sexuality uh, whisper and kind of a, a, a sense of this being maybe a little bit of a dirty subject. We used to talk about that. Today there are no dirty subjects, but back in the day, think that was a dirty joke or this is a dirty subject. What did that infer? It meant that there was something inherently like icky about it. Let's not do that, okay? Let's talk about it the way God talks about it. It's wonderful. It's very, very good. And moms and dads, I would urge you that this starts with you in the way that you relate to each other. I know when, I, when, when my, my daughter sees me and uh, Jennifer making out, uh, her, the look on her face is one of complete disgust. But I could tell she also kind of likes it. Because it says something of security about mom and dad. Okay? So perhaps you should apply that this afternoon in your, in your homes. Okay? But it starts with you. Create an environment where these things can be talked about openly and biblically, okay? If it's, if it's a shameful thing or something, you know, thou shalt not speak of such things here, then your child is going to grow up with a kind of twisted perspective on it that doesn't reflect what God said. It's wonderful. I also would urge parents, you need to frame your child's perspective on this before you let little Johnny down the road do it, okay? And I think that age is getting younger and younger all the time where that has to happen because it's so blatantly in the culture around us. So you might be embarrassed. I know people, their parents never discuss this with them, never. Everything they got, they got from little Johnny down the road. And that's a perilous thing, because you never know what little Johnny's saying about it, right? So I would encourage you to have the talk. And I know there's resources available online, Focus on the Family and others have, you know, how to have the talk and, and how to open this uh, communication with your child. I would encourage you to do it developmentally appropriate, okay? And that's probably going to vary child to child. And point them to the gospel. Point them to a picture of of what, what it looks like. Again, if little Johnny down the road does it, it's going to be a disaster. I have a good friend who is now a pastor in Iowa, and uh, he's three years older than me. And he swears that um, when he was in sixth grade, I think, and I was in third grade, he told me all about this. And he says that I listened to him and when he was done, I screamed, my parents would never do that. <laughs> and I ran out the door. I have modified my view on the subject. I'm now convinced they did it four times. <laughs> Which as the oldest, I think, was three times too many. I don't know why the snow and everything, I feel a little, I've enjoyed this sermon and service. <laughs> uh, be glad you came today, okay? 
Normally I got to be a little stiffer about stuff, but I haven't been too stiff about this. All right. Finally, do not stigmatize sexuality and don't sacrilege it either. And this is the fine balance that we have on this subject is that it's very easy to miss it on both sides. Okay? So we say it is good, it is holy. Hebrews says the marriage bed is pure, keep it pure. If we raise it too high, we venerate it and we expect from it things that God never designed it to be. I remember when I was single, I heard a guy that said, if if you're getting married just to have sex, you're going to be terribly disappointed. And that's true. That's, That's putting it too high and expecting from it things that God never intended for us to derive ultimate meaning from. Don't do that. Don't idolize it. That's, I mean, the world, in a way, does that, right? They, they worship it. But at the same time, if we make it a dirty thing, if we sacrilege it, if we put it too low, we are also missing. So I would encourage the Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft, just right. Very special, but not God and not gross. Right there. Finally, some of you, uh, final illustration, some of you might remember uh, the old Will Smith movie, I, Robot. And uh, in, in, the, in the movie, Will Smith plays this, uh, he's a cop, and they, they, it's a futuristic movie. There's, in, it, there's all these robots who basically are serving humanity. And uh, they, you know, they do anything that humans don't want to do. But, uh, they, but they have no consciousness. They're just robots, except one. And his name was Sonny. And Sonny was unique because Sonny had self-awareness and Sonny had self-consciousness. And Sonny looked at, at his body and there were certain metals and things that, were, that he had that none of the other robots had. And the story of the movie is largely Sonny over and over again saying, what is my purpose? Why am I here? And looking at how he was made to try to determine what his actual purpose is. And as humans, we are a lot like Sonny. We're born with hardware. We're born with certain hardwiring that God designed us, chromosomes and plumbing fixtures and these things all indicating a purpose. And since God is good and God is perfect, this purpose in our gender and our sexuality is very, very good. To him be the glory. Amen.